Well, friends, as always, it's uh, such a great privilege and honor to be able to declare the Word of God to us all this evening. Uh, tonight, we'll be taking a bit of a break from our current series on Colossians, and instead taking a little bit of a detour uh, by covering a very well-loved passage, 2 Corinthians 1. So I'd like to invite you to go ahead and turn with me to 2 Corinthians 1, verses 1 through 11, your copy of God's Word. Now, for many of you, I'm sure you'll immediately recognize this passage in particular as the place where we read of our Lord as the one who is the God of all comfort. It's that famous passage that usually comes to our minds when we are thinking of someone who is ill or sick or hurting, and we would simply long to encourage them to uh, just stay strong in faith in the midst of adversities. Or we might use this passage even to give them a Hallmark card and tattoo uh, 2 Corinthians 1 onto it, so to speak, in order to encourage people with these words that God is the God of all comfort. And if you're like me, you probably even quoted this idea that God is truly the one who is the source of comfort so many times over the years. But the fact of the matter is that the Word of God is far more than just a proverbial pat on the back. God is more than just a mere comforter in the words that we often think of when we think of the word comfort. It's more than just God simply saying to us, it's okay, son or daughter, everything's going to be all right. Rather, this passage speaks so profoundly into the deepest distresses of our own situations in such a way that it draws our own souls away from the seat of our own hearts to a better and truer seat, the higher throne of heaven itself. This place where the praise of this glorious grace is heard resounding at all times, echoing forth his praise. So tonight, my desire for us as we dive into this passage is that we would see the actualized healing hope that is found at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So let's go ahead, and again, if you haven't turned already to 2 Corinthians, I invite you to turn there as we read verses uh, 1 through 11 of chapter 1 together. So let's go ahead and listen attentively for the voice of God in this place. 2 Corinthians 1 begins by saying this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort, too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experience in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. 
you also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Friends, this is the word of God. It is forever faithful and true and given to us in love. So while it's still fresh in our minds, let's go ahead and pray and ask for God's blessing on this time. Let's pray together. God, we ask that as we open up your word, that you would be the one who proves yourself to be sufficient, sufficient to meet every single one of our needs in this place. I ask God that I would simply get out of the way in terms of the preaching of the word and that you yourself would minister to our own hearts, pouring forth your grace from high into our hearts by faith. And so we ask all these things in our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus, his name. Amen. Well, friends, as we begin to explore this theme of healing hope tonight from our passage, uh, I want us to recognize first and foremost that it comes only by and through Jesus Christ, as Second Corinthians tells us. And in order to be faithful to the text and to allow it to speak for itself, I want us to focus in on only two key major points this evening. First, that our God will indeed console us, which we'll see in the first seven verses, but also that our God will indeed raise us. And we'll find that in verses 8 through 11. So again, our two points for this evening will be that God will console us, and second, that our God will raise us. Now, as a brief introduction to the letter of 2 Corinthians, given that this is kind of a one-off sermon in this book, I think it's important to note a little bit about the context at first. See, this was hardly the first letter, nor even the second letter, go figure, that Paul had written to the believers there in Corinth and Achaia as well. In fact, according to church history, and even right from our own text, we see that this was actually the fourth letter that Paul had written to the Corinthians. We see as much in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9, and even 2 Corinthians 2, verses 3 through 4. Paul, in other words, had penned these letters from a place continuously over and over and over again, from a place of utter distress and deep concern for the reception of the gospel of grace. But all of these letters, whether they were the two that we have that were inspired by the Holy Spirit, or even two others that were written more in Paul's own flesh, each one of these letters were written for the purpose of the believer's faith. Specifically, as 1 Timothy tells us, uh, or 2 Timothy rather, for the purpose of teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. And so the Corinthians were so hard-headed in many ways, as you read through this text, you'll see it even implicitly, that they needed several iterations of the same message just propounded to them over and over and over again. They were, in fact, an imperfect church in need of much patience by the apostles and those who pastored them. But they were still, most notably, still the church. Why? Because they belonged to God. And so God, through the words of Paul and Timothy, refused to give up on them. They refuse to let them go their own way. Now, any of us who have been members of a Bible-believing church for any amount of time, imagine most of us in this case, can easily spot the blemishes that not only we ourselves bring to the church, but blemishes within the body of Christ as a whole. And the longer we stay in the church, the more and more we become acutely aware of these blemishes, so to speak. But rather than giving up on the local expression of the body of Christ, to which God has called us, Scripture repeatedly, even here in 2 Corinthians, reminds us of the fact that we are called to promote the peace and the purity of Christ's body, 
the church. Peace in terms of our relationships with God and others. And purity in terms of our holding on to sound and right doctrine and faithful witness before the world. Paul's letter here, then, to the Corinthians and the Achaeans alike begins with the same unalterable presupposition that the grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ belonged even to these believers who wrestled with skepticism and the fear of hopelessness. But grace and peace were still theirs in spite of their own waywardness, in spite of their own rebellion, even in spite of the ways in which several men from their own midst had viciously opposed the apostolic teaching that they were trying to comfort them with here. But friends, it's with this same presupposition that God remains faithful even when we are faithless, that this God of all comfort passage begins to come to the light. We begin to see it, rightly so. See, this message of God is the God of all comfort is far more than a mere hallmark card. It's more than just a pithy little statement or expression. It's more than even a hollow creedal statement that we can hold on to, cognitively speaking. This fact that God is the God of all comfort speaks to his refusal to give up on each and every single one of us who are called by his name. Why? Because Jesus, as the Son of God, and the faithful husband to his bride, the church, refused to give up on them, even to the point of death, death on a cross. And so this is why Paul begins in verse 3 with the word blessed. Blessed. See, in the Greek, the word is not the same typical word for blessed that we see throughout the New Testament. Uh, the word, if you study Greek like a couple of us here, is makarios, blessed. Rather, it's the word eulogetas, where we get the word eulogy, or to speak well of someone or something. And this is, I think, vital for our text this evening, because Paul is not simply ascribing to God some vague attribute, the idea of his eternal blessedness, if you will, but rather he's stating very clearly, eulogetas, blessed, speak well of God. In other words, God is to be praised, spoken well of, quite literally, by all of his people in all of their circumstances. And so the context in which God is to be praised is stated, therefore, in verses 4 through 7. The context being each and every single one of our afflictions, especially. And the word for affliction in the Greek has this connotation of being pressed in together from all sides, being put under all kinds of pressure and weightiness. So even as we, as believers, feel the various weights of this world, the social pressures from others, especially unbelievers, and the internal struggles of our own souls, Paul, by the Spirit, is essentially telling us that our hearts can still, in the midst of these afflictions, cry out, praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. But notice this important distinction about praising God in the midst of affliction. See, we are never called to attribute the trials and the evils that we face ever to God's character. Rather, we are to attribute praise to Him in light of all these circumstances. To put it very simply, uh, for those of you who are kids present, I want to think about it this way. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3 doesn't say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of trials and the God of all evils. <laughs> Quite the opposite. 
See, on the contrary, the scripture states to us explicitly that God is in fact the God of the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction. So friends, do you hear the stark difference there? The stark difference between not only that idea, but even the qualifier there, that God is the one who comforts us in all of our afflictions. See, in light of the pressures that surround us, in light of the injustices of this world that we indeed face, in light of the dispositions of our even our own souls, they cling to us and that seem to weigh us down internally as we are startled by this present darkness all around us. We have still a hope that heals, a healing hope, if you will, that is bound up in the arms of our Heavenly Father, from whom proceeds every last drop of sheer, undeserving mercy over us. Mercy that is ready to tend to us and water our weary souls. But greater still, the source of such mercy, divine mercy at that, is not just bound up in the heart of God the Father, but rather the full communion of the entire Trinity, all three persons. And here, Paul refers to each person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, either directly by name or even indirectly, if you will. See, God is the Father of mercies, is of course seen here explicitly, along with the Lord Jesus Christ as being both eternally begotten of the Father and the one who indeed relates to us his redemption and his salvation as the mediator of the covenant of grace. But even beyond the Father and the Son, we see the Spirit here as well. If you're looking at the text, do you notice where that is? So you might not see the word Spirit explicitly, but implicitly speaking, the Spirit is here, the same one who proceeds from both the Father and the Son, as he's alluded to here. How is he alluded to? As comfort itself, the comforter, the helper. And that word is used ten times over here in our own passage. It says Christ told his disciples in John 14 in the Gospels, John 14, 16 through 17, and especially, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, or paraclete, or comforter, if you will, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. That seems that word, friends, parakletos, comforter, helper, the Spirit, is a synonym, really, for the Holy Spirit, the one of truth. And it's employed here, again, ten times over in our own passage. Any of us uh, who are in leadership or a position of influence, or maybe those of us who are parents or, or influencing in any way in particular, know the importance of stressing the same truths over and over and over again to make a point, right? I see a few people smiling at that. Well, Paul and Timothy here as leaders in the church did exactly the same thing as they were trying to impress upon the people the presence of the Spirit in light of these afflictions. That word comfort used over and over and over again. And so they were essentially, Paul and Timothy writing this letter, were essentially commending the church to recognize the Spirit's work of bringing forth comfort that we all long for. But let's be real. Do we actually experience comfort in this life? When we think about it, truly, this idea of comfort has been tarnished. 
and our own culture and our own society. We often think of the idea of, of comfort as being uh, just things that simply tend to our souls momentarily. And in our culture, we've become so driven even by seeking and pursuing happiness or ordinary comforts, we often think of the idea of uncomfortable situations as being situations that don't go our way. We call those things uncomfortable. Or the uncomfortabilities of having an awkward verbal exchange with somebody. Or the uncomfortability of when we are living without the total health and happiness that we desire. And we rather resort to the idea of uh, saccharine bliss or pure bliss instead. We don't feel that we feel uncomfortable. Well, these things in themselves we would deem as being uncomfortable, these moments where we don't get our way, or things don't go our way. But that's not at all what Scripture is talking about here. See, on the flip side, we often speak of comfort, again, as purely superficial, material things, comfortable clothes, comfortable mattresses, even comfort food like we're about to enjoy a little after this sermon. But, again, biblically, that word comfort here has an entirely different connotation. It's more than just the idea of earthly satisfaction. It really has this idea of a deep, soul-satisfying consolation that comes from the one who made us, who knows us best. And so the comfort that is here in 2 Corinthians is not this false sense of uh, detached obliviousness that pretends like all is well when indeed all is not going well in our lives. In contrast, God's consolation of our souls, true comfort by the Spirit, speaks the presence of peace back into the exact despairs of our lives. It speaks peace into the places of our own lacking, our own doubting, our own insecurities, our own genuine feelings of displacement in this life. And see, ironically enough, for as often as we seek earthly comforts in this life, we often neglect the truest form and even source of all comfort. True comfort is indeed the application of God's grace by the Spirit, secured by the redeeming work of Christ and measured out for us specifically to meet our needs. As God, our Father, the Father of mercies, pours it out over us, especially for us. And stark contrast to our own idea of comfortability, when we ourselves are faced with afflictions and the uncomforts or discomforts of this life, God himself refuses to feel that uncomfortability. He rather draws near to us in the midst of our discomforts. And he draws close to us with a gentle and healing hand. When our souls become bereft of the joy and the peace that we have known as believers, like the prodigal sons and daughters that we are, our Father doesn't just stand by and watch with scorn or shame or a mere pity over us. Rather, He rushes after us with forgiveness in His arms, extending to us that same forgiveness that we need. And he rushes after us, providing us, like the prodigal son parable, a, a meal of the finest foods to share with us, and a signet ring to then place upon our finger, finger, reminding us of his undying commitment and his covenantal-oriented love that will never fail us in Christ. 
For as we suffer, as we are afflicted by the troubles of this world, God the Father recognizes that we suffer indeed as members of Christ's own body, his beloved Son. This is why 2 Corinthians 1 verse 5 in our text says this, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. In other words, each and every one of our afflictions as believers in Christ is never arbitrary. It's rather always purposeful. So this is the divine redemptive purpose behind God's consolation found here in our text. And it says this to us, this purpose, this comfort, and salvation. So what exactly is meant by these things then? Well, verse 6 immediately clarifies it for us. It says that our comfort is one of patient endurance, the sanctification of our deepest distresses, as the hymn writer once put it. And our salvation, on the other hand, is one of unshaken, eschatological, or futuristic hope in God, our God whose help has already come for us in the person and redeeming work of Christ, and yet will still deliver us from all evil on that final day of judgment against sin and death. See, God's consolation, then, far surpasses good feelings of comfort, so to speak, that we long for, even in the midst of real sorrow. God's true peace and consolation is not short-term in its effect. It is everlasting. It does not merely provide us with a fleeting sense of inner peace that we might long for. And it certainly does not promote stoicism or obliviousness or ignorance within our own souls to the pain that we actually face. Rather, God's consolation brings lasting, real, and fitting hope. Hope that directs us toward the heart of Christ. Hope that is driven by the Comforter, the Holy Spirit himself, and is distributed to us by the healing hand of our Father in heaven. And friends, this hope is hardly meant to be contained within us. It's meant to be expressed, talked about, and even result in the praise of his glorious grace. Again, from verse 3, that word blessed that we read. That is the purpose behind it. And so when we learn to cry out those words, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, we then become divinely equipped and truly empowered to then actual, actually comfort those around us who are afflicted by the same comfort which we ourselves have experienced. So in application, how much greater will then our service to our neighbors here in downtown Lynchburg, let alone our evangelism and our zeal for such things, be enlivened as we learn to rest in the consoling shadow of the Almighty God? Well, this in mind brings us to our second point of this evening, and it comes to us from verses 8 to 11. The fact that God not only will console us, but that God will indeed raise us at the last even in the midst of our own sorrows. See, the first section we read that God will console us in the midst of our afflictions, but here we see in verses 8 through 11 that God will indeed raise us. And so if the purpose of our afflictions is to find then that true peace or consolation, real comfort in God, and then learn to console and comfort others with that same volume of love in the midst of their own afflictions, here we find that the purpose behind our afflictions is not merely limited to reveling or even enjoying or celebrating God's peace, 
but rather our purpose is then also to glorify the God of our salvation, the God who raises the dead. So let's go ahead and look again with me at these uh, verses, if you will, verses 8 through 11. Paul again says this, For we do not want you to be unaware or quite literally agnostic, as the text says in the Greek, agnostic of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. No like topic, huh? But right at the heels of all this talk of comfort and consolation, Paul and Timothy then immediately wrote to the church to apply such heavenly themes in their relationship with God and with others as members of the church. And so this is for our own rightful application of the text comes directly to be for us this evening. See, though we don't have nearly enough time to go into the full breadth of Paul's and Timothy's sufferings for Christ, I'd like to encourage you to take note of the following passages that most primarily refer to this degree of suffering they face. So if you're a note-taker, I'd like to encourage you to write down this uh, passage right here, which is 2 Corinthians 11, 23 through 28. And if you'd like, you can go ahead and turn there as well for a brief moment. But here in this passage, chapter 11, verse 23 through 28, Paul provides a drastically abbreviated list of all of the different ailments that he experienced. This included what he described as great labors, as multiple imprisonments, as countless beatings, being brought to death's doorstep, if you will, figuratively speaking. He goes on to say that he received five times from the Jews, 40 lashes minus one, three times being beaten with rocks, once stoned, three times shipwrecked, adrift at sea, placed in constant danger from the Jews, from the Gentiles, in the city, in the wilderness, at sea, and let alone in constant agony and anxiety over the well-being of the churches. These churches that he says were essentially exposed to the false teachings that were present in that day. Now the historical context about these events and more is laid out not only there in chapter 11, but even also in 1 Corinthians 15 in his earlier letter along with the historic account in Acts 19 and so many other passages. But beyond all of these ailments, anxieties, and even false accusations that Paul bore for the sake of the church, he was most obviously concerned for the church's reception of the gospel of grace through the mouths of Christ's apostles. Again, time would fail us to explore this in full detail, but perhaps 2 Corinthians chapters 3 through 12 meaning almost all of the entire letter that he laid out, he put forth his case once again for Christ's authority to be received by assurance without suspicion on the part of the people. Now, countless false teachers in that day, in the mid-50s AD, had arisen at this point, and false gospels promoting all kinds of things that we've been reading about in Colossians, like asceticism and mysticism and irreligion, had all begun to pervade the church even at this point. But the culmination of all these spiritual concerns and physical torments are what I believe Paul and Timothy had in mind then when they wrote these opening words to us that we have been focusing on in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 11 specifically. See, in light of all these various sufferings that were just flooding his mind as he wrote this under the inspiration of the Spirit, 
it's no wonder why he began to recognize that they did indeed despair of life itself. Because they had essentially truly received a sentence of death. They felt this sentence of death not only internally, but even outwardly. And they experienced multiple kinds of deaths or losses for the sake of Christ. Both Paul and Timothy alike experienced the death of their earthly comforts, the death of their well-being, the death of their societal reputations, the death of their own personal goals and dreams, all for the cause of Christ. And yet it was in these losses, in this pit of despair, if you will, even the despair of life itself, that they would then come to know all the more fully the true life of Christ. It supersedes every last one of these losses. As I was thinking on this passage earlier, it reminded me, of course, of Philippians 3, verses 7 through 11, in which Paul became all the more reflective and absolutely resolute that none of these losses were truly losses at the end. Rather, they pointed him to the one who gave him everything. Philippians 3, 7 says this, but whatever gain I had, I accounted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him, even in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Church, this is the same anthem of victory over death that Paul and Timothy pronounced here, again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Had they received the death sentence of their earthly comforts, Yes, completely, fully. But as he says in verse 9, that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So if the purpose that we read of earlier in regard, to con in regard to God's consolation is to let us then enjoy communion with God and to then even tell of his sweet presence in the midst of affliction, here we see the purpose in this last section as being especially to recognize the losses all for the sake of Christ. And in doing so, then, to recognize that we share in his sufferings because we are indeed members of his body here on this earth. But even more, we are then made to know the power of his resurrection. For if God had already conquered over death in the sun's crushing of the serpent's head at the foot of the cross, Surely the God of peace, as Paul would later say in Romans 16, will soon crush Satan under our own feet at that last day because of our union with Christ. And if God, furthermore, has triumphed over sin and the affliction that it brings on our behalf, how much more then shall we not, uh, shall he not rather deliver us from every lesser affliction in his good pleasure? All these things which pale in comparison to the death of Christ on the cross. It's as 2 Corinthians 1 verse 10 says, God delivered us from such a deadly peril, meaning that final death that our sin results in, and 
as such, he will then again deliver us. Namely, out of these smaller things. On him, we have set our hope that he will again deliver us. So friends, have you set your hope on him, Jesus, who is indeed the resurrection and the life? Is your only hope, ironically enough, as we just read earlier, in life and in death, that you are not your own, but rather that you belong both in body and soul to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ? Is it your daily hope that come whatever may, he will continue to hold you in his strong and mighty hand and bring forth his plan of healing, specific to your own life even, over the pains and the afflictions, all resulting of sin in various forms that you now face? And if so, this then leaves us with a final word of application tonight. To not only know cognitively, but rather to experience the deepest part of our soul, the sincere and faithful communion that we have with the Lord as he offers it to us by his grace. See, as we begin to see our earthly afflictions as being uh, for the cause of our deeper knowing of Christ and sharing with him and his fellowship, we will then begin to have a far greater and more lively understanding of our communion with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit alike. Our prayers will then be enlightened, as 2 Corinthians 1 verse 11 says, as we begin to help those who suffer and, and help them even in prayer for them. So that proper thanks and praise to God will be made. And furthermore, our communication of God's presence in the midst of our ailments, as we actually are encouraged to talk about our ailments and sufferings with other believers, ailments both large and small, will begin to utterly change our heart's dispositions and our visible witness to God's faithfulness in our own community here, not only here at New Hope, but beyond. So pragmatically speaking, our passage then encourages us then to not harbor our afflictions in the form of isolation, to suffer silently in pain, but rather this passage encourages us to actually openly talk about these things with honesty and with tactfulness. Because we are encouraged to express them, since as we do that, we learn to communicate them before others, as God would have us, in such a way that he would receive the glory for these things. And so if we learn to speak of our afflictions with God's glory in mind, we will notice that instead of our natural tendency to complain when we talk about our afflictions, it will then leave us instead with a greater recognition of the idols that we often manufacture and even facilitate in our own hearts. As we learn to openly confess our afflictions and speak of them more freely, we will be more cognizant of sin's presence in our lives and so seek to help others through their own struggles with sin. And as we express what ails us in proper context, our acts of complacency or tendency toward apathy or even willful ignorance toward such things will all begin to dissipate in favor of a real mindfulness toward and for the things of Christ. And finally, as we learn to praise God in the midst of our afflictions, we will grow in our trust in God's presence with the fruit of thanksgiving and an eschatological hope that continues to press on in light of the pressures of life. Finally, in closing, note the afflictions that you face, brother and sister, in this life are never purposed for your isolation 
rather forgive me. God loves to sanctify each and every single one of your afflictions in order to console you with the knowledge of a far greater intimacy to be had with him. And so I want to leave us with the words of Isaiah, as we were alluding to earlier, Isaiah 55, verses 12 to 13 especially, which say the following to us. You shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the fields shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn, big afflictions, instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall never be cut off. This is the promise that we have with our God of grace. And so with that in mind, let's go ahead and come before him in prayer. God, we thank you that as we have been in your word this evening, you have been allowing us to contemplate the things that you have written for us in your word. And you've allowed us to distill these things and let them simmer a while so that we might drink them deeply and, and meditate upon the things of Christ and not our own thoughts. Lord, I ask that as we continue to go about our worship here in this time, and even our fellowship over food and just hanging out with one another and enjoying each other's company. May you use this time in our small church's life to remind us of the fact that you refresh us by your grace. And that you endue us with every necessary blessing, every spiritual blessing from on high. And most importantly, the fact that you love to lavish us with such so we thank you that you are indeed our Father of mercies, and truly the God of all comfort and consolation. So we pray all this in your holy name.